Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. First hour, we're going to study Revelation 4 and 5. In the second hour, we're going to uh, take a look at the book of Job. the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer before we open the Lord's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity of being here this morning. We realize that every day of life is a gift from your hand. We ask, Father, that as we open your holy word this morning, that your spirit will be with us to instruct us, to inspire us, and Lord, to strengthen us for the crisis that is ahead. We ask, Lord, that you will bless every activity uh, that is going to take place here this day. That if there's anybody who has not made a commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord, that this will be the day that they will do it. We ask, Father, that uh, you will enlighten our minds now, help us to uh, have a clear uh, thinking process so that we might grasp the teachings that you have for us. And we thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, we're going to go to uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and, um, and then we're going to study, as I mentioned, the book of Job. So let's go to Revelation 4, and the reason why I'm doing this I believe that these two chapters are speaking about the ascension of Christ and his installation and inauguration as our high priest in the holy place of the sanctuary. Uh, however, this scene points forward to the final climax when all of the redeemed will be together and they will render honor and praise and glory to Jesus uh, when all of God's people go to heaven and return home. Uh, so, actually, it uh, deals with the death of Christ, it deals with the ascension and installation of Christ, and it deals with the final consummation uh, as well. Uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set up in heaven. And one sat on the throne. Now, I want you to imagine this. Heaven is opened. Uh, and John is led, we're going to notice, through an open door. And inside that door he sees... A throne. And on that one throne, he sees one person sitting. Now, this is a little bit unusual uh, because if you read with me Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, you'll find that two people are described on a throne. It says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Jesus is speaking here. 
as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So when Jesus ascended, where did Jesus sit? He, he sat with his father on his father's throne. However, when we read Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2, we find the throne, but we find that only one person is sitting on the throne. And uh, as we study, it's going to become very, very obvious that the person who is sitting on the throne is God the Father in Revelation chapter 4. Yes? Does it matter that the word one is in italics? I mean, that, that word's not there? Uh, it should be there, even if it is italics, because as we go along, we're going to notice very clearly that there's only one who is seated on the throne. The context makes it very, very clear. So, yeah, the, the word one is added, but as you read along, it becomes very clear that there's only one on the throne. Uh, like, uh, you know, for example, in chapter 5, uh, we'll come to this a little bit later on. It says, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Uh, so obviously the lamb uh, is, is standing there at that moment anyway, and he has not arrived. He's not sitting on the throne. So there's one on the throne. Uh, as we read along, that'll become clear. Okay, now, uh, so there's one sitting on the throne. And the question is, is it just possible that uh, when John sees this uh, portrayal in verse 2, that Jesus has not arrived yet where his father is? Uh, that, that's what I believe is taking place here. Uh, because the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat with his father on his throne. Here, there's only one sitting on the throne. Now let's go to verse 3. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And now verse 4 is a critically important verse. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones. So I want you to visualize this. Uh, John is allowed to look into heaven. He looks through an open door, it says here. Inside the open door he sees a throne. He sees one, that one throne and one sitting upon the throne, a rainbow over his head. And now he sees around the throne, maybe in a semicircle semi or perhaps a circle, 24 thrones. And it says, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. So I want you to notice 24 thrones and there's 24 beings sitting on the thrones. Uh, and it says, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. So there's several characteristics. They're sitting on thrones. They have white robes. And they have crowns on their heads. Uh, now, before we read verse 5, I would like us to go to verse 6 to see what other beings are present there. We'll come back to verse 5 in a moment. It says in verse 6, Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So you find in the midst of the throne, four living creatures. Around the throne, 24 elders. On the throne, one is sitting. And uh, notice uh, how these beings are described in verse 8. It says, the four living creatures, each having six wings. That's an important detail. Each having six wings were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, and now notice their song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now the question is, who are 
these uh, beings that are described as the living creatures. Uh, living beings probably is a better translation. Well, Isaiah 6 identifies what they are. Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Notice that you have the throne once again. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. You notice the, the parallel with Revelation chapter 4? Each one had six wings and their seraphim, according to this. Uh, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, now notice their song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the living creatures that are in the midst of the throne are really uh, what? Seraphim. And what are seraphim? Seraphim are a high category of angel. Cherubim and seraphim are the two highest categories of angels. Uh, now, let's go back to verse 5, and let's notice where this scene is taking place. I've suggested that this scene is really describing the ascension of Christ uh, and his inauguration as our high priest. Uh, but the question is, where, according to the context, is this scene taking place? Verse 5 gives us a clue. It says, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, there's some very important information here. First of all, there's seven lamps of fire. The word lamps that is used here uh, is the same Greek equivalent of the seven-branch candlestick in the Old Testament in the holy place of the sanctuary. So it becomes very clear that this is taking place where? It's taking place in the holy place where the seven-branch candlestick is. Another detail which, it, which is very, very important is that verse 5 tells us that the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne and those seven lamps of fire represent what? The seven spirits of God. Are the spirits of God present in heaven at that moment? Yes, it says so there. It says, seven lamps of, fire, lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, there are not seven Holy Spirits, by the way. Uh, it, the number seven represents totality, fullness. Uh, so this is dealing with the fullness of the Spirit. Uh, now, this is important because we're going to notice in chapter 5 that once again, the seven lamps of fire are spoken of, but it says the seven lamps of fire represent the seven spirits which are sent into the earth. That's very significant. There's a transition from them being there to them being sent to the earth. Um, now let's go to verse uh, 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. Do you see that there's one here? Worship him who lives forever. Him, singular. Worships him who lives forever and ever. And cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. So, the one who's on the throne is praised for what reason? He's praised because he's the creator. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, 
this has to be Jesus, because wasn't Jesus the creator according to the New Testament? Uh, yes, uh, but you'll notice the, the terminology that is used here. It says, by your will, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Uh, God the Father and God the Son got together according to the spirit of prophecy, and they laid the plan to create this world. The Father was the architect, and Jesus was the master builder. They both participated in creation, but Jesus, Ellen White makes it very clear that Jesus implemented the Father's will in the creation of the world. That's why, uh, that's why it's important to see by your will uh, things exist. Uh, so, so actually, uh, the Father is the, the creator and he creates through his Son. By the way, we have something similar to this when we speak about uh, the judge. Uh, you know, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, the judge is portrayed as God the Father. Isn't it? He's the Ancient of Days. And then the Son of Man comes on the clouds to where the Father is. And yet in John, we're told that the Father judges no one. He has committed all judgment to the hands of his Son. So uh, it, we shouldn't be too concerned over the fact that uh, it speaks here about them praising God the Father as the Creator because God the Father and the Son work together. By the way, do we have the Trinity here in Revelation chapter 4? Yes, we do. Well, we, uh, we, Jesus hasn't arrived yet. Chapter 4 and 5, actually. But in chapter 4, we have the one sitting on the throne, who is God the Father. We have the seven spirits, which represents the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 5, we're going to notice that uh, Jesus comes uh, to where the Father is. So uh, you have a clear indication of the Trinity here. So chapter 4 ends, and you wonder certain things. You wonder, first of all, uh, is there any reference to the angelic host in Revelation chapter 4? Other than the seraphim. By the way, cherubim and seraphim are very close, closely identified in Scripture. They're described in very similar terms. If you go to Ezekiel 1 uh, and also Ezekiel 10 and 11, you'll see that the cherubim are described almost identically to the seraphim. Uh, so, so they're very, very close together. Uh, so uh, clearly, the seraphim are there. Uh, clearly, the 24 elders are there. Uh, God the Father is there. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there, the seven spirits. But who's missing? Well, the first thing that's missing is the angelic host. And by the way, the angelic host is distinguished from the seraphim. It's not the same thing. We're going to notice. The angelic host is not mentioned there as praising God. But even more glaring is the fact that Jesus is missing in chapter 4. He's not on the throne. They're not rendering him honor and glory and praise. They're rendering honor and glory and praise to God the Father. And they're not honoring God the Father because he's the Redeemer. The whole song honors the one on the throne because he's the Creator. And so you say, what about the Redeemer? Where was Jesus? Where were the angels? Well, chapter 5 is going to give us the answer. Let's go to chapter 5 and verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. So I want you to visualize this. The one who is sitting on the throne has in his right hand what? A scroll. Written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who, and, and notice his uh, question. Who is worthy? to open the scroll and to loose its seals. 
Basically, what that means is who is qualified? Who is qualified to break the seals and to unfurl the scroll? And now we find a universal crisis because verse 3 says, And no one in heaven could God the Father break the seals and open the scroll? Yeah, well, the, the word man there is supplied. Hmm? Pardon me? And was God the Father qualified? No, he wasn't. The angels? No. Moses and Elijah? No. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And now notice John's reaction in verse 4. So, I wept much. By the way, there, in Greek there are two basic words for crying or for weeping. One is a relatively softer word, you know, like normal crying. Uh, there, then there's a word that is crying in a loud voice with anguish. That's the word that's used here, the Greek word klio. In other words, this is, this is bitter crying. This is crying out, out loud. It's the same word that's used to describe Peter when he went out of Pilate's hall. It says he wept bitterly. And so it says, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, question. Did this scroll contain something extremely important? It must have. Did the scroll contain information which was a matter of life and death? Obviously, yes. You know, John would not be crying to see church history, merely. Because he'd already seen church history when God showed him the seven churches, which is in Revelation 1 to 3. There's obviously something far more important here in this scroll than simply church history. And so you say, well, what did the scroll contain? Well, we know for a fact that scrolls that were sealed like this, uh, actually what, what they did is they would roll up the scroll, then they would put seven pieces of string. Sometimes there were more than seven, but seven was more common than not in the Roman Empire. They would put pieces of string around the scroll, and then where the two pieces of string, where the two ends of the string met, they would put a blob of wax uh, that would attach to the two ends of the string and to the scroll, or they would place sometimes clay there. And that sealed the scroll so that no one could tamper, uh, open the scroll before it was supposed to be opened. In other words, it was to protect the scroll from being opened by someone who was not authorized to open the scroll. Also in Rome, we, we know from ancient records that scrolls that were sealed in this matter were usually uh, wills. Or testaments. So basically what you have here is a will or a testament. And what it is, is the will or testament of the human race. Now let me ask you, is anyone qualified to open a will? Can just anybody go and open a will? No. Is there a person who has been uh, named specifically, uh, who is uh, qualified, who has the right to open a scroll? Yes or no? Absolutely. Now, what does a scroll, what does a testament or a will contain? 
a will or a testament contains what an individual will what? Will inherit. That's right. Now John knows that this scroll is really the will or testament of the human race. It contains the names of those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be lost. And what they are going to inherit, in other words. And he knows that if someone doesn't show up who's qualified to break the seals and to open the scroll, no one will inherit what? Anything. And so this is a matter of life and death. If the scroll isn't open, that's it. Everybody's lost. Now let me read you some statements from scholars uh, who have studied a lot about this uh, concerning the scroll. Uh, this is uh, a statement by Ranko Stefanovich, uh, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, pages 197 and 198. And I must say that I don't agree with a lot of what Stefanovich has in his commentary. Um, a lot of it goes against, and I have to say this because, uh, you know, you might look up the book. Uh, there's a lot of things that are in clear disagreement with the spirit of prophecy, and I believe with the Bible as well. Um, it's used as a textbook for the book of Revelation in most of our colleges, uh, but you have to be very careful when you read this uh, commentary. But um, this, this comment I'm going to read is not only found in his writings, it's found in writings of others, and it can be corroborated historically. Uh, he says this, uh, page 197 and 198, Archaeologists have brought to light many documents sealed with two to seven or more seals. For instance, Roman law dictated that a will or testament had to be sealed with a minimum of seven seals of witnesses in order to render its contents valid, although some evidence shows that more than seven seals were used on occasion. Like any sealed scroll at the time, the scroll of Revelation 5 appears rolled up, tied with a cord and sealed along the outside edge with seals of wax affixed at the knots. As such, it could not be opened and its contents disclosed until all of the seven seals were broken. The breaking of all seven seals is preliminary and preparatory to the actual opening of the scroll and the disclosure of its contents. Are you catching the picture? If you break the seals, then you're able to open the scroll. R.H. Uh, Charles, who probably is the... Uh, he's probably dead now, but the foremost expert in intertestamental apocalyptic literature uh, had this to say in the International Critical Commentary, volume 1, page 137. Uh, he says, A will, according to the Praetorian Testament, in Roman law, bore the seven seals of the seven witnesses on the threads that secured the tablets or parchment, uh, or parchment, such a testament could not be carried into execution till all the seven seals were loosed. Uh, this is not an Adventist. Now this is a, a real expert in intertestamental literature and uh, in uh, Roman history. And then also Kenneth Strand, um, who was an Adventist scholar who did some fantastic pioneering work in the book of Revelation. We owe a huge debt to Kenneth Strand, especially when it deals with the literary structure of the book of Revelation. He says this, the central item, the seven sealed scroll, portrays a will or testament, for that is precisely what a, what a, a seven sealed document was in Roman law in John's day. We find then that the picture we have in the subdivision of Revelation from 4.1 to 8.1 is a court scene in which a will or testament is to be opened. In the context of Revelation, this will or testament could be a title deed, 
as it were, to man's lost inheritance, an inheritance which has been repurchased by Christ the Lamb. Thus the scroll is a book of destiny. The opening of it means inheritance in God's kingdom. Its remaining closed means forfeiture. No wonder John wept when he thought no one could open the scroll. So there are several scholars that have weighed, weighed in on this. Now, the question is, does Ellen White have anything to say about this scroll? She most certainly does. She has two very, very significant statements that I want to share with you, where she corroborates the idea that basically this scroll is a testament that contains the whole history of the human race and the decisions that people have made within the course of history that determines their eternal destiny. The first statement is found in Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, Page 7. Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 7. Very significant statement here from Ellen White. She says this, There in his open hand lay the book, the role of the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations and the church. What does the scroll contain? The prophetic history of nations and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in that role the influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of earth's history to its close. Basically, what it contains is a universal history as it relates to this earth. And every action, every decision that people have made within the course of history, which determines what their destiny is going to be. Now, if the scroll isn't open, everybody's lost. If the scroll is open, it will be revealed who is going to regain the lost inheritance. Let me ask you, did man lose the right to rule, did he lose the territory of planet earth when Adam sinned? Yes, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The devil said to Jesus, you know, uh, all of this I will give you because it has been given to me and I give it to whomever I please. Because Adam gave, he forfeited, in other words, this earth and its rulership to the devil. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, like we studied yesterday, he took away the kingdom from the devil. He recovered it. In other words, he redeemed the lost possession. Therefore, but still, the scroll needs to be opened to see who's going to benefit from what he has done. Now, the second statement is very significant because it not only presents a general picture, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, that it contains the whole history of the human race and the decisions that people have made within the course of history. It contains a very specific event that was recorded in that book, in that scroll. Uh, you remember when uh, Pilate brought... Uh, Barabbas and Jesus and placed them side by side and he said to the multitude uh, choose who you want Jesus or Barabbas by the way it's there's a high possibility that Barabbas was also called Jesus uh, there's manuscript evidence that, that seems to indicate who do you want which Jesus do you want Jesus the Christ or Jesus Barabbas <laughs> interesting there's a whole typology involved there but I won't get into that uh, now the multitude said Release unto us whom? Release unto us Barabbas. 
Now notice what Ellen White says about this momentous event. This is Christ's Object Lessons, page 294. Christ's Object Lessons, page 294. She says, Thus, the Jewish leaders made their choice. Their decision was registered in the book which John saw in the hand of him who sat upon the throne. The book which no man could open. And now here comes a very critically important point. In all its vindictiveness, this decision will appear, will appear before them in the day when this book is unsealed by the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, two things that we need to notice about this statement. First of all, are those who cried out Release unto us Barabbas. Are they going to see this once again, their decision? Are they going to see it again? Where are those people today? So, has the book been unsealed yet? Uh, Yeah, it hasn't been unsealed to them, right? Because it says here that it's going to appear to them. In order for them to see it, they have to be what? They have to be alive. Furthermore, let me ask you, had this book been unsealed when Ellen White wrote this? No. Because she says, when this book is unsealed by the line of the tribe of Judah. She's writing around 1900. And she's speaking about the opening of the book as something that is going to transpire when? In the future. Now the big question is this. When is it that those people are going to be alive and they're going to see reenacted the decision that they made. It's after the millennium. In a little while, I'm going to read you a statement from Ellen White, great conversation. Have you ever read where Ellen White speaks about in great panoramic view above the city? Do you know that she said she mentioned certain people by name outside the city? I'll read that in a few moments. But let's go back here to Revelation 5. Are we doing all right so far? Okay, Revelation 5 and verse 4. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has prevailed. Better translation would be has overcome. Has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. I want you to notice that when Jesus opens the seven seals, he opens it as the lion of the tribe of Judah. When he finally unfurls the scroll, he does it as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, uh, this actually is, is going to take place at the very end of time. How many of you have ever seen a lamb that is wrathful? A lamb, you know, you say, you say it's peaceful, it's calm. But in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, you have a question. The great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And whose wrath is it? It's the wrath of the lamb. So the lamb has become what? A lion. That's right. 
He overcame as a lamb, but he opens the scroll as the lion. Now, let's go back to verse 6. And I look and be, looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. Now, wait a minute. Where did he come from? Chapter 4, he wasn't there. Now, suddenly, he's there. You say, well, he must have been there, but John didn't see him. No, because verse 7, verse 7 says that he came to where the Father was. And so it says, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having, having seven horns and seven eyes, which, I now notice this, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the seven spirits that were before the throne of God in chapter 4 now are what? Yes. Absolutely. 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 Now the seven spirits are what? They're sent out. Let me ask you, what happened when Jesus was inaugurated as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary? On the day of Pentecost, what was poured out? The Holy Spirit was sent to the earth. Right? So what's being described here in chapter 5? What's being described is the spirits that were before the throne in heaven. Now, the seven spirits are poured out upon the earth. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. The inauguration of Christ. Now, don't, you don't worry so much because there are some texts that say that Jesus stands at the right hand of God. And there's texts that speak of Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God. The fact is that the reason why is because you have two functions of Jesus when he goes to heaven. He sits as king and he stands as high priest. So really, some texts emphasize his kingship, other texts emphasize his priestly work. And here, what is being emphasized in this passage? The priestly work of Christ. Are you with me or not? Okay, now, let's go here to verse... Uh, 7. It says, then he came. Oh, so, so if he came, he wasn't what? Oh, I wasn't there before. By the way, some people think that this is portraying 1844. You know, the beginning of the judgment in 1844. Because many, many of the characteristics are very similar. You know, in, uh, you have thrones in Daniel 7 when Jesus comes to, to the most holy place. You have thrones. You have one seated on a throne. You have 10,000 times 10,000 angels that, that bring Jesus to the throne. And uh, so you have many similarities. However, the reason why you have the similarities is because everyone who is found in this scene here in Revelation 4 and 5, in 1844, everybody moves into the most holy place. So you have the same beings in the most holy place. Are you with me? By the way, is there any evidence in chapter 4 that the Father ever moved to where He is there? No. The throne is there. And one is sitting on the throne. He hasn't moved. In Daniel 7, do you find the one sitting on the throne moving to the most holy place? Yes. He has a throne that has wheels and it moves and then the throne comes back and it picks up Jesus and then Jesus moves into the most holy place. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, you have, uh, you have Daniel chapter 7, where the Father moves in with the throne, 
and then and, and ten thousand times ten thousand ministered uh, to him, and and then you said it also says that thrones were placed. That's plural. It doesn't say twenty four, but it says thrones were placed, and then Jesus is brought just like in Revelation chapter chapter five. But you have two different historical occasions. Is what I'm saying. And uh, in Revelation 11, you get to the point where the, the heavenly temple is open and the Ark of the Covenant is seen. There's, you're, there you're reaching the point in Revelation where the most holy place is in view. Are, are you following me or not? Okay, now let's go to uh, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, this is another indication that this is taking place in the holy place. Where was the altar of incense? Where was incense presented? It was presented in the holy place, right? It says here that they had uh, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Go with me to chapter 8 just for a moment. Chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4, uh, so that we can see where the prayers of the saints were presented. It says in verse 3, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So where was the incense offered? It was offered at the golden altar. And where was the golden altar? It was in the holy place of the sanctuary. So that's another indication that this is taking place in the holy place. Now let's go to verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Who's singing the song? Look at the previous verse. Who's going to sing this song? The 24 elders? Only the 24 elders? No. The previous verse says that it's the 24 elders and the four living creatures that are going to sing this song. Now, what, who, who are the four living creatures, according to what we noticed? Seraphim. Uh, were seraphim ever redeemed from the earth? Are they going to reign upon the earth? Are they going to be kings and priests upon the earth? Seraphim? No. Seraphim are angels. So immediately we discern a problem. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is he worthy? What makes him qualified? What makes him worthy? Why couldn't the father open the scroll? Why couldn't Elijah? Why couldn't Moses? Why couldn't one of the angels open the scroll? Now we find the reason. For you were what? Slain. What is it that qualifies Jesus to be able to break the seals and open the scroll and reveal who is going to inherit eternal life? The fact that he died on the cross. That's where he recovered the kingdom. And so it says, for you were slain. And now here you have the problem. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, we have a problem there. Because if the seraphim are singing this, then the seraphim come from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Are you following my argument or not? Because the seraphim are also singing this. 24 elders and the seraphim are singing, apparently, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've redeemed us. So... Uh, it seems that it's saying that even the seraphim were redeemed from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Were the seraphim redeemed from uh, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Of course not. So immediately you see there's a problem here. How do we deal with this problem? It becomes more complicated. Notice verse 10. 
and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign upon the earth. Are the seraphim going to be the rulers upon the earth when everything is said and done? Of course not. So immediately you say, well, how do we solve this problem? See, most Adventists teach that the 24 elders are those who resurrected with Jesus. That Jesus took to heaven when he went as first fruits, as a sign of all those who are going to resurrect at the end of the age. Is that possible? It's not really possible. You say, why not? Because the 24 elders are already there in chapter 4 before Jesus arrives. Are you following me or not? They're already there. Now, who are the 24 elders? Ellen White identifies them clearly. The last three pages of Desire Ages, Ellen White identifies the 24 elders. She says that when Jesus ascends, let me see if I can find this statement. Well, I don't know if I'll be able to locate it or not. Well, oh, here it is. This is a phenomenal statement of Ellen White where she talks about the identity of those who are mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5. Allow me to read this. It's a lengthy statement, but I think it's important to read. Uh, it's the last three pages of Desire, of Desire of Ages. She clearly tells when this is taking place, what we've just uh, looked at. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended... He led the way, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. So this is the ascension of Jesus. He's going to heaven. Those that he rescued from the tomb are following him. By the way, before I continue reading, do you notice in Revelation chapter 5 that the angels appear now in verse 11? It says, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces and... Uh, Faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing, honor, wisdom, glory, etc. So now you have what? You have the angels who join the scene. And by the way, they're not the same as the four living creatures, because it says, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. They're distinguished from the four living creatures. Why is the heavenly host there now in chapter 5 and wasn't there in verse 4? In chapter 4? Because the angels went to pick up Jesus. What, did, what was Jesus caught up into when he ascended to heaven? Into a cloud. Now, notice how we caught all of this. She never, she never quotes uh, the verses but you can tell that she's commenting on them. So it says, The heavenly host, with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song, attended the joyous train. As they drew near to the city of God, the challenge is given by the escorting angels. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Joyfully the waiting sentinels respond, Who is this King of glory? 
This they say not because they know not who he is, but because they would hear the answer of exalted praise. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Why, why would it say the Lord, mighty in battle? Because he's just come from the battlefield. By the way, he has the scars to prove it. Because when John looks in the midst of the throne, it says he sees a lamb as though he had been what? He's come fresh from the battlefield and he still has the wounds. But he's alive. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Again is heard the challenge, who is this King of glory? For the angels never weary of hearing his name exalted. The escorting angels make reply, the Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Then the portals of the city of God are opened wide, and the angelic throng sweep through the gates amidst a burst of rapturous music. So where were the angels? They were outside. Because it says that the, that the angelic throng sweep through the gates. So if they sweep through the gates, they must have been where? Outside the gates. Now we know why they're not mentioned in chapter 4. Now, here comes the particularly important part of our passage. There is the throne. And around it, the rainbow of promise. What is Ellen White commenting on? Revelation 4. Remember we read there was a throne, and above the throne there was a rainbow? Then she says, there are cherubim and seraphim. Who would those be? The seraphim would be what? The four living creatures. That's right. Then she says this. The commanders of the angel hosts, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds are assembled. Who was the other group that was there? There was one sitting on the throne. There were the seraphim, the four living creatures. Cherubim are very similar. Ellen White is adding the cherubim to the scene. They're not specifically mentioned, but they're described in almost identical terms to, to the uh, cherubim. And then there's the 24 elders. Ellen White doesn't say 24 elders. She says what? She says the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds are assembled. Then she says the heavenly council, before which Lucifer had accused God and his son... The representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome the Redeemer. Now wait a minute, they're there to welcome the Redeemer? That's why the 24 elders are there in chapter 4. So can the 24 elders be those who resurrected with Christ? Uh, absolutely not. There's other reasons too, and uh, I'll, uh, perhaps if we have the time I'll share them with you. Uh, she continues saying, they are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king. Now you remember the question, who is worthy to, to break the seals and to open the scroll? You know, this needs to be opened to reveal who is going to inherit the lost possession. This universal crisis. Now, then John sees the, uh, a being that looks like a lamb who has been slain. And he hears, don't worry, the line of the tribal Judah has overcome and he will open the scroll. Now listen to this. But he waves them back. See, the angels are, are they, they're eager to celebrate his triumph and glorify their king. But Jesus waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. 
He enters into the presence of his Father. Is that in Revelation 5? Remember, he came. He enters into the presence of his Father. He points to his wounded head, his pierced side, the marred feet. He lifts his hands, bearing the print of the nails. What is he presenting himself as? The lamb as though he had been slain. Ellen White doesn't say lamb. She describes the wounds of Jesus. She doesn't say 24 elders. She says the sons of God, the representatives of the worlds. She doesn't say living creatures. She said cherubim and seraphim. She's interpreting Revelation 4 and 5. He points to the tokens of his triumph. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. He approaches the Father. See, there he comes. He approaches the Father with whom there is joy over one sinner that repents, who rejoices over one with singing. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in the covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. See, what, what was the covenant? The Father and the Son made that if man should forfeit his lost possession, Jesus would come to what? To redeem it. Their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This pledge Christ has fulfilled. When upon the cross he cried out, It is finished. He addressed the Father. The compact had been fully carried out. Now he declares, now notice the concern of Jesus. Now he declares, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O my God. I have completed the work of redemption. You say, now wait, a completed? Didn't he still have to do his work in the most holy place in 1844? Absolutely. But all he's doing in 1844 is applying the benefits, like we noticed yesterday, of what happened at the cross. The cross is foundational. Without blood you can do nothing. The cross is foundational, but it's not everything. Because the blood has to be used, first of all, when we confess our sins, as we noticed yesterday, when we repent of sin and we confess our sins to Jesus, Jesus as our high priest applies, puts to our account what he did. He applies to us the benefits of his atonement. And then in 1844, after 1844, when our name comes up, you know, he's going to show to the universe, look, all of these sins were forgiven through the blood. Now, should they be cleansed from the sanctuary through the blood? And everyone will say, yes, they should be cleansed by the same blood from the sanctuary. And so the blood cleanses the sin from the sanctuary. The blood is foundational. Foundational to works that Jesus does after. doesn't mean that because Jesus died on the cross, that's it. The question isn't, if everything was finished at the cross, what has Jesus been doing the last 2,000 years? You know, you ask a Christian that and they're thrown for a loop. Well, you know, he, that's right, he's doing heavenly contracting. <laughs> Takes a long time to make those mansions, doesn't it? Especially considering that he took six days to create the whole world. <laughs> When the Bible says that Jesus, the Bible does not say that Jesus went to prepare mansions for us. The Bible says, in my Father's house are many mansions. They were there when Jesus spoke. He doesn't need 2,000 years to make mansions. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Listen, he goes to prepare the place by the work that he does in the sanctuary. 
by the work of, of uh, being our intercessor, by the work of performing the work of judgment. That's how he prepares the place. Are you with me or not? Now, let's continue here. The compact had been fully carried out. Now he declares, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O my God. I have completed the work of redemption. If thy justice is satisfied, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. What is the concern of Jesus? He says, Father, I want my people with me. Now listen to this. The climax. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. Satan is vanquished. Christ's toiling, struggling ones on earth are accepted in the beloved. Before the heavenly angels and the representatives of unfallen worlds, they are declared justified. Where he is, there his church shall be. Isn't that what the book is all about? Of course. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The Father's arms encircle His Son, and the word is given, Let all the angels of God worship Him. With joy unutterable, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the Prince of Life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before Him, while the glad shout fills, shout, uh, fills all the courts of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. She's quoting Revelation 5 verse 12. In case you still weren't convinced that this is talking about Revelation 4 and 5, now she's quoting Revelation 5 verse 12. Then she says, Songs of triumph mingle with music from angel harps till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. Love has conquered, the lost is found. Heaven rings with voices in lofty strains proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 5 and verse 13. Did Ellen White have it straight? Folks, she had more than, divine, more than human wisdom. She doesn't quote the verses except Revelation 5, 12 and 13. But when you read this passage, you know that she's commenting on Revelation 4 and 5. It's very clear. There's the throne, the one sitting on the throne. Now Jesus comes to where he is. There are seraphim and cherubim. There's the representatives of the worlds that never sin. You say, how do you resolve the problem of Revelation 5, 9, and 10, where it says, you have redeemed us and uh, from every nation, and we are going to reign upon the earth? The fact is, folks, that that is a mistranslation. Every single Bible version, with the exception of the King James and the New King James, translates that differently. You say, well, you know, but those versions, those are bad versions because they're not the King James. Well, the King James is not a perfect version. You know, I, I respect the King James. It's a reverent version. It's a very beautiful version, speaking in terms of, of Victorian English, uh, ancient English. Yes, very nice. But, you know, when it comes, for example, to the state of the dead, the NIV is far superior to, to the King James Version when it comes to the state of the dead. We owe the NIV a debt of gratitude when it comes to the state of the dead. You know, where, where the King James, for example, the word Hades in the New Testament, it's used 11 times. In the King James Version, 10 times it's translated hell, and one time it is translated grave. You go to the NIV, and it's switched around. The NIV, most of the times, translates Grave, and only once does it translate it hell, and that's in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is a parable. 
Not only that, whenever you find the word soul, many times you'll find in the NIV the word soul, which is very confusing in, uh, you know, in the King James Version. For example, as her soul was departing. In Genesis 35, verse 18. The NIV says, as her life was departing. So when it comes to, to the state of the dead, the NIV is much better. That's, I'm, not, I'm not recommending the NIV to be your study Bible. What I'm saying is that we need, to, we need to look at all of the Bible versions. And by the way, this is a mistranslation from the Greek. Because really the Greek does not say in Revelation chapter 5 and verse, um, and verse 10... It doesn't say, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign upon the earth. The, the Greek language says, and they shall reign upon the earth. In other words, the, the 24 elders and the living creatures are seeing about the redeemed. They are not the redeemed. Are you following me or not? So that's how we resolve this issue. Um, now, allow me to, to mention one thing in closing, and that is that... This song of Revelation 5, 12, and 13 has not been sung in its final version yet. In other words, Revelation 5, 12, and 13 is pointing to the future. It was sung back then, but not every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth sang that song at that point. In other words, it's pointing to a future event. When is it that all of the universe is going to sing this song? It's actually after the millennium that it's going to be sung by all of the redeemed who died and who are alive. Now, um, let's talk just a moment about the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes at his second coming, is God the Father going to come at the second coming? No. No, it says in his Father's glory. <laughs> Why would it say in the book of Acts that he shall send Jesus? Yeah, that's a theory that, that's been developed. That, uh, you know, the silence in heaven is, is really because uh, every heaven has been emptied of beings. But the fact is, you know, I don't have... I'm, I'm going to put online all of my notes on the seals. I just finished a series on the seals in, in, prayer, in our prayer meeting. Uh, you know, as Jesus is descending from heaven uh, at the second coming, uh, the question is asked, uh, the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? And then Ellen White says that there's a period of awful silence in heaven. And then the answer is heard, my grace is sufficient for you. And then you have the song. So that's the period of silence that, that uh, is being referred to in the seventh seal. And of course, the breaking of the seals and unfurling of the scroll takes place after the millennium. The great panoramic view and all of those who crucified Jesus, every, all of the wicked are outside the holy city. God is going to reenact the whole history of the human race. They're going to be able to see the, the decisions that they made within the course of history. Uh, actually, at the second coming, you're going to have the same thing as... Uh, at the first coming. Let me explain. God the Father is going to stay in heaven because he's going to send Jesus, it says in Acts chapter 3. He shall send forth Jesus. 
So he's going to be there. Let me ask you, are the cherubim and seraphim going to be there too? Sure. How about the representatives of the worlds? Are they going to be there? In heaven? Sure. Who's not going to be there? Jesus. Why isn't Jesus, why isn't Jesus and why aren't the angels there? Because he's left to come and pick us up. So Jesus comes, and what does he do? He picks up all of the redeemed. And now he takes the redeemed to heaven. By the way, the first fruits that Jesus took to heaven was the, was the small indication that he was going to bring everybody home. Right? It was like a down payment, that he was going to bring all of his children home. So now Jesus will come. He comes with all of his holy angels, the Bible says. And he's going to pick up his people, and then he's going to travel back to heaven with his people. And then you're going to have that final explosion of celebration that's described in Revelation 5, 12, and 13, where everyone, all of God's people from all ages, are going to sing that song of Revelation 5, verses 12 and 13. Are you with me? Now, allow me to say one final thing about the, about the 24 elders. And about, uh, you know, the, the multitude of the redeemed. The 24 elders are mentioned uh, not only in Revelation 4 and 5. They're mentioned in several other contexts in the book of Revelation. They're mentioned in Revelation 11, Revelation 14. They're re- mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. But the interesting thing is that each successive time that they're mentioned, it's not talking about when Jesus ascended to heaven. It's talking about when uh, at the end of time, the redeemed will have joined Jesus at the throne. And you know that in each successive time that the, that the 24 elders appear, you have one sitting on the throne, you have the Lamb, you have the angelic host, you have the four living creatures, you have the 24 elders, but in each successive uh, context, you have an additional group of people that are not mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5. And that is the great multitude which no one can number. Because in each successive context, it's not talking about the inauguration of Christ, it's talking about when God's people actually join him at the throne when Jesus has come to heaven. So anyway, I hope this is, uh, has uh, been beneficial for us to sit down and study some more. And uh, we can praise the Lord that very, very soon we're going to regain our lost inheritance through what Jesus did. Now let's take a break of about 15 minutes and uh, come back and then we'll deal with the book of Job, a fascinating book. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of the Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.